Hello. So you're on, we're, we're logging on via Trace's Zoom and he's in a current, he's currently in a meeting, but this is fine. You can do simultaneous meetings. I don't know. He just sent me his login information and I launched um, a meeting and I've, you know, it's all, all in a hurry. So I bumped, bumped myself out of my own account and just used his. Okay. Um, well, it seems like it's working and hopefully it didn't like kick him off his meeting. I, I assume he knows what he's doing when he sent me the information and said, I can't make it my meetings. And maybe it's not as, you know, could be a goo. In fact, I met when Maggie and I met with him to discuss production, we used um, Google Meet. So okay. It's possible that um, he's- All right, he's, well, so that means it'll record onto your computer right now. No, I'm using cloud recording. Oh, okay, okay. Um, so you guys have a cloud thing set up. I got to sign into Trello today. Yeah, I mean, I literally, I don't know um, Trace was going to manage the recordings and production for the most part. And then um, Maggie was going to do the audio because that's fairly simple. And I was going to do the video since that's what I'm used to. And then we were going to back each other up. And obviously I'm backing Trace up today. So. Yeah, right. It's come in handy. Um, my other question is, I think that the, from season one, while we wait for Allie to come in, from sure. season one, um, there's two episodes left. Are you, is, is Trace doing those last two episodes or are you guys doing them? Because he was saying Ben Hunt was supposed to come out this week and I'm like dying to hear this one. Um, well, thank you. Now I know which one to give priority to. I can work on Ben tonight and get the video okay. out. Yeah, Ben, um, it was supposed to be for this last season, Ben, the Ben Hunt, and then me, Jason, and Trace, just like talking, and that was the end of season one. Okay. Um, but I've been dying for this Ben Hunt one to come out, because everyone said it was so good. Oh, you weren't in that one? No. So I really want to hear it. Hi, Allie. Welcome. Hi. Hi, Sorry Steven. The, Hello. Sorry for the technical issues. It, no problem. It always, it always happens. Um. So we're already recording, so we'll just cut this initial part and I'll do like an intro. Um, but basically, we like to keep the conversation super informal. Um, I'll run the you know hosting duties, but Stephen's also going to um, jump in and um, be part of the conversation because he is actually one of your fans. Um, and it's just like so amazing because there's just like this cool synchronicity happening um, with a lot of different things. Um, we could talk about that too. So um, generally the conversation follows the trajectory of like, talk us through your doom or optimism, like what made you feel doomed? What made you feel optimistic? And then we can start getting into the details about like your, your reception of the Tucker article, um, you know, what your thoughts about it and then what people thought about your article, you know, thinking about people. I, I, I'm interested to hear from people with an audience how they're receiving this information. You know, are they like stressed to hear it or, you know, this kind of stuff. So um, if that all sounds good to you, I can start. That's great. Yeah. Great. Super. All right. So um, welcome everybody back to the Doomer Optimism podcast. I'm here with Allie Katz and Stephen Morris. Um, Allie wrote a response article to Tucker's Doomer Optimism article, which caught our attention. And I thought, let's just bring her in. Let's bring her into the Doomer Optimist fold and, and you know, get to know one another. Um, so let's start by um, maybe, Ali, you can introduce yourself 
um, talk a little bit about your background and maybe talk about your Doomer optimism by way of, you know, your own biography, because more or less it is almost always tied up with our biography, right? Sure, sure. And before I get started, Stephen, did you want to say something? I noticed you unmuted. Well, just in case there's something spontaneous there. Um, I'm just excited that that you found your way to the community because our history goes way back from the farm, which I assume you'll mention, or even before that. Yeah. And um, no, I'm I'm really interested to hear what's happened in all those gaps that I haven't been reading about on social media. Great. Well, thank you. I'm 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 so glad that this all came to be, and I'm actually going to take a quick minute and see if I can turn off find this Discord server that is open on my computer. I was somewhere. I thought it was mine. I was just looking at. <laughs> yeah. Like, okay. I have a, a a Discord open somewhere. How do I find it amongst all my tabs and? and close that down so it can stop uh, notifying us that I've got a message. Um, I need some sort of a, uh, we, a tool that will um, take you to the tab that is making noises. That is, yeah, right, yeah, seriously. <laughs> if somebody could uh, invent that, that would be wonderful. Um, let's see, I have to look at literally every tab in order to uh see which one it is and if i can't find it we'll just maybe need to deal with it in the background let's see <laughs> yes i hear you discord server i mean maybe maybe it would be interesting well to give you a moment to hear from steven about your background with ally um sure. I, i'd love i'd love to hear that and that would be good to kind of set the stage too love sure that. so Sometime around 2009, 2010, I um, entered a separation in my marriage. And it's, it's just so, you know, these crazy stories we have. I got, I got hired by Ali's producer. Well, Ali was making a demo video for the Oprah Winfrey Network to try to get a show on there. And she was doing conflict mediation or something like that. And I was there to help do the video production part. And the guy who was supposed to be there for marital conflict and divorce didn't show up. And I'm in the middle of a separation headed towards divorce. And I became the natural person to fill in for this missing scenario. So I, I got first to know Ali from that conversation about what was going on in my marriage. And um she's very charismatic and you know i think anyone who knows her discovers that pretty quickly and we kind of went our separate ways for a little bit but we were part of the same community in boulder and sometime later she started this farm which will tell you the farm story in an idea of getting closer to the land and i got up to the farm to check out community because i've always had this interest in community and always been challenged with my own personal stuff to actually enter into and stay there. And so I got to know her through that and then other things around the Integral Center in Boulder. Cool. Yeah, yeah, it's been a long time. Um, and, and so when Stephen met me, I had just moved to Colorado um, uh, from Los Angeles and something 
Well, a lot of things uh, told me that I, I needed to, to leave Los Angeles. And, but that, that's really, in many ways, the beginning of my Doomer Optimism story. I didn't know that it was a Doomer Optimism story back then. I didn't even know the term Doomer Optimism until um, coming across Tucker Max's article and then, and then writing my own. But um, uh, it really was the beginning of what I, you know, can now apply that Doomer Optimism term to. I, you know, had achieved all of the metrics of success that were possible on the, you know, traditional plane of success in Los Angeles with, you know, building two multi-million dollar businesses, writing a best-selling book on legal planning for families, um, uh, living three houses from the beach, sending my kids to private school, um, uh, appearing on TV as a family financial and legal expert. And yet something inside of me knew that there was something really wrong is something off. And I didn't know what that thing was uh, until I um, uh, had an ayahuasca journey actually in September of 2009. And this was very early days, right? Today, I think plant medicine is much more accepted and, you know, becoming more uh, mainstream. But back then, it was still very fringe. And I had, in fact, judged it quite a bit myself. And, oh, that's just a way for people to get high. And, and yet life uh, really, you know, brought me some signs that encouraged me to do it, so I did. And in that, um, uh, in that ceremony, I saw a vision of a world that works for everyone. Mm. And I had never known such a thing before. I didn't know what that was, you know, but I, I, I really, I got the visceral experience of it of, oh, wow, that there is a reality that we could experience where um, it, we aren't in conflict. Well, conflict um, uh, is healthy. <laughs> we aren't in unhealthy conflict. We aren't in these win-lose dynamics. We're not playing a zero-sum game where actually we are living close to the land and um, everybody's doing their part. And you know, we were, were, were getting along and, um, and it felt so good in my, in my being. And then I came back into the, you know, default world, the regular world that I was living in. And I began to see how every, every choice I was making and every way of being that I was being in the world was actually contributing to the exact opposite of this world that works for everyone. And that my choices were actually at the heart of a world that does not work. That, you know, I was building my success on the backs of other people, um, that I, um, uh, you know, the kind of one of the final straws came when I was on uh, TV to talk about Tiger Woods divorce. And I got this loud voice in my head that said, Alexis, you know, what the F are you doing? You have, you know, spent four hours getting the hair and makeup and drive down to the studio. And you're, you're here to gossip about another human being on national television. Like you can never do this again. 
And it was very confusing to me because that was the thing I loved to do more than anything was go on TV and yep. speak to the camera. And like from a, a success and ego-based perspective, I was winning. Wait, what? <laughs> so um, uh, within, within two months of that happening, when I was on um, uh, the television talking about Tiger Woods, uh, I was, uh, had everything packed up in a U-Haul to move to Colorado. <clears throat> two u-hauls <laughs> my my ex-husband um uh you know all of our animals we had all these animals and you know there we go to colorado and when i when i got to colorado um you know i was still very much trying to make it in that old world and that's actually how i met steven was as he said um uh you know putting together a um you know, pitch to be on Oprah's new network at the time, the Oprah Winfrey network, the own network. And I was just way ahead of my time. Like we got into notes and everything and, you know, they, they could not, they could not envision a show that helped people resolve conflict in a really healthy way at that time. <laughs> now it seems kind of basic, right? Like, duh. Right. But back yeah. then they were like, that won't be interesting or something, you know. <laughs> it was a Jerry Springer. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And that's what people wanted back then, you know, is, is more of the unhealthy conflict, showing the unhealthy conflict. And so um, when I moved here to Colorado, I really did not understand what I was moving to Colorado for. I was now ask, I what, now why I do. Colorado. Mm -hmm. Life circumstances uh, just guided me. I had come out to speak at uh, my best friend at the time was graduating law school. And you know, I, I was a lawyer and I was training other lawyers on um, you know, the entrepreneurial aspect of lawyering. I still do that today. And so she had me come out to speak to her law school class. She was graduating from Denver um, uh, University. And there was a house for rent, two houses down from her on a lake. It was mm. twice the size of my place in LA. Uh, our kids were best friends. It was like mm. this very, you know, cul-de-sac, all American reality. And um, so I said, well, okay, this is why I've been building my life and businesses online. There's nothing actually keeping me in Los Angeles. I'm gonna go, and so uh, so I did. And now, looking back, I can see that I came to Colorado to learn to be human. Mm -hmm. I had lost my humanity along the way um, from law school and then building law practices. You know, being an associate in a law firm. Uh, and then um, building my law practices and then, you know, pursuing fame and fortune, I, I had lost a part of my humanity. And so I now can see I came, I came to Colorado to find that, to learn how, you know, who am I, why am I here and what's mine to do. And, and part of that was buying this farm mm -hmm. that Stephen mentioned. And when I bought the farm, 
I thought that I was buying the farm for my ex-husband, my kid's dad, to be able to have an income stream. I thought I was buying the farm so he could grow medical marijuana because okay. Colorado was at the beginning of the medical marijuana movement. And he was, you know, really good at growing marijuana and he loved marijuana. And I was like, okay, I will buy this farm so he can do that. And um, he started that down that road uh, and was actually doing great with it. And then uh, through a series of events that um, actually included um, uh, some poor relational decisions on, on my part, uh, uh, he ended up making a choice that led to him no longer being able to, to build that business. And so now I have this farm and I will tell you that the day I signed the papers on the farm, I said out loud to everybody there, mark my words, I will never, I will never live here. I will never live here on this farm. I was not buying it to live there. I never imagined that I would live there. That was like kind of the opposite of what I imagined for myself on this trajectory of success that I would, right. you know, live on a farm you know, 45 minutes outside of Boulder on this, you know, little two acre farm in this very old farmhouse. Like that was not what I imagined for myself. <laughs> and, you know, I, I think what's coming and this is, you know, part doom or part optimism is that anybody who's in any sort of a disillusionment is going to be forced into awareness. Yep. And I was, I was, I was forced to see how unsustainable my choices were both for myself and for the people around me and really for just everything that I thought was true. Yeah. Um, and, and the only way that I was able to wake up to that was to be forced into a reality that I didn't know how to choose. And so I think the optimism part of all of that for me is that with awareness, we do have choice. And now mm -hmm. that you're creating this movement, we can actually choose to, to see before we have to be forced into a reality that is, can be extremely distressing, you know, hence the, the doomer part. So I was forced into uh, a situation where uh, I ended up having to move to the farm. And I can look back now, and of course I was not forced. I, I had an infinite number of choices actually available to me, but I could not see them. And, uh, and I really do believe that, you know, everything truly happens for us, even when it looks like it's not at all happening for us. It really is. And, and so life was um, uh, giving me just a series of um, two by fours up the side of the head, really to, to show me um, uh, how to become a safe person. And that's what I talk about in my, in my article um, around Zoomer optimism is that what I think the, you know, the real um, solution is that Tucker points to is that we have to become safe people and attract other safe people to live and work with and 
collectively, we have not actually been taught that. Right. And I, yeah, and I, to me, what resonated and seems like it resonated with you too, is to start at the, the scale of the person, of the individual, like work through to the extent possible, your own strength, your own resilience, your own psychological and physical health. Um, and then it can sort of, uh, you know, radiate outwards, um, but take that as like a first gauntlet thrown down. Something that, um, that stood out to me when you were speaking was this process by which you're sort of forced by material the material world or like you know the, you're trying to make a decision trying to move forward in your life you're struggling with um what are my goals what are what are um what am I doing here what, why am I doing what I'm doing do I do I actually agree with myself or is like are my goals implanted by somebody else what struck me is um the, the story you have and I think a lot of the doomer optimists in general have the story where you um you made a decision and that decision was one, you were telling yourself at the, at the time that that was one thing, but looking back, it was something else, which is so funny to me because I think um, you have all these psychological defenses and only a certain set of psychological like heuristics to understand what you're doing and why. So um, part of my backstory is I moved um, from Chicago to Uruguay to start a homestead with our family. And, you know, the reasons I gave for that at the time is just like, you know, I just want the kids to have a more um, peaceful existence. And like, I'm just not so sure about how things are going to go in the U.S. And the reasons looking back are so much deeper. And I understand now why I did it. Um, but at the time, it was just like a this just feels like the right thing. And I'm like, kind of coming up with a reason, you know, yeah. like in, at the spot, because you're sort of forced into doing it. Um, I'd like to hear a little bit more. You had, you had a farm or a, or a community in Costa Rica. So I do now. Yeah. So, okay. so that farm that we've been talking about, that was 45 minutes to an hour outside of Boulder. Um, that actually was, I failed in that project. Um, that did not okay. succeed. I do not still own that farm. I that was a a learning experience um, for me. Before you, yeah, I was going to say. I'm wondering if maybe without revealing details um, that you don't want to reveal, if there's any lessons you could impart on the failing part, because I think my sense is that a lot of the people who are are like the audience of this and and people sort of waking up and probably will be future audience members of this are are people who are idealistic and are like I'm gonna start a farm I'm gonna start a community and and it will be so great if we heard from people on the far far side of having an experiment and and failing or or maybe not just a, a total failure but lessons learned it would be helpful well, I think it comes back to exactly what I was, what I am speaking about in my article around being a safe person and being able to surround myself with safe people. And I was not a safe person and I did not know how to attract safe people. And that really was on, on three levels. Um, the first was that I was, I had a disease I've now identified and I, and I teach about called money dysmorphia. So money dysmorphia is a distortion around money that I think has been 
implanted into us by our current cultural paradigm um, that causes us to uh, place um, an incorrect value on money. So we put way too much attention on money and, and in a distorted way that causes us to compromise um, on our non-renewable resources. Time, energy, and attention are non-renewable resources. Money is actually infinitely renewable when we know how to work with it and understand it. And um, I didn't understand any of that. And all I, all I, every decision that I made back then was made through the lens of money. Mm. While, while holding a belief that that wasn't the case. I didn't know I was doing that. Well, you know, it, there was this major disconnect between what I thought was true and what was actually true about my own relationship with money. And it was very confusing for me because I knew how to make money and I was making a lot of money. And yet I constantly felt broke. I constantly mm -hmm. felt as if I didn't have enough money. And then I was attracting people to me who were looking at me as if I had all their money, which to them I did. And then mm -hmm. were, it felt to me as if they were just sucking my energy. Um, uh, and because I couldn't tell, are they actually in my life because they want to build something with me or do they just want my money? Right. Very confusing. I couldn't tell what was true. I was paying all these people that then just started to feel like instead of like we're doing this thing together and they're supporting me, they felt like a burden and I became resentful. And, and then when I, um, you know, finally moved to the farm, uh, because I, you know, what I was trying to do at the farm was build a community, but mm -hmm. I wasn't going to live in this community. I was building a community for them, but not for me. That does not work. No, <laughs> we call this concept, the skin in the game concept is common in our, um, our little circles. You know, you have to, you have to be uh, subject to the same successes and failures as everybody else together. Right. And, and there was yep. this big disconnect because I was providing all the money, but they were living on the farm. And in a, in a way it was like, they were just living there until I ran out of money. I, it was very confusing. It was very <laughs> yeah. confusing. I couldn't you know tell what, what was I, going on. Yeah. And I would just suggest one, the, the, I guess my background is as a sociologist and I would chalk that up to um, at least through my like sociological lens, um, issues with governance, meaning these new communities are popping up and you're like, yeah. what are the rules? What are the laws? Yeah. Who's in charge? Yeah. Um, what are the roles? What are the expectations? And a lot of that stuff is like cultural, you know? So in, in like, maybe it, let's just say a tight knit religious community, it would be clear what all of those things are. What are we doing? Because um, there would be hierarchy. <laughs> yep. Exactly. Well and then the, hierarchy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then, and, and then, yeah. you know, 
and differentiation of roles, you know, like this person does this person does this. Yeah. And the, this is the, this is the um, balance we keep. Whereas now I think a lot of people, you know, they want to start with a new form of governance and it's like, well, <laughs> I'm not sure what, you know, may, for my orientation, at least is to try your best to, to pull, um, forms of, of social organization that have worked in the past to the extent possible, try it out, keep working on it. But sometimes you try too much new stuff at once and it just blows up because no one really knows what they're doing or has experience yeah. with it. I don't know, Stephen, did you want to say something? I'm well, sorry. This is, this, is, this is where what Ellie's saying about being a safe person. And, yes. it, and it's like, I was interested in that community myself and I didn't realize how unsafe I've been in, in community, you know, and I have my own version of wanting to get close and then, then pulling away and basically isolating myself. And there's, there's been such a mass of neediness behind my motivations that even as aware as I am of them, I still, you know, still challenge to be responsible for them. Well, and that brings us to the, the second part, right? So the first part of becoming safe and where I wasn't safe was around money, right? So that's my first one is get good with money. Um, and when I say get good with money, I mean like good with your relationship with money, right? And, and then the second one is getting right with your sexuality. And I think that that was very confusing as well in, in, in community. We collectively did not know how to work with our sexual energy, how to understand it. I certainly did not. And, and what I understand now is that whatever is true for you around your sexuality can work if you, or if I am right with it, if I'm right with it for myself, you know, whether I am, and meaning like honest, direct and clear, with whatever is true for me, you know, and I think Stephen, what you're sharing is that your desire to be part of community, um, uh, when it was coming like from a need that you didn't necessarily even know that you had or could express, maybe that's where the, you know, a distortion could have come in. And when there's a distortion and we're not honest or able to be honest, direct and clear with whatever is true for us, we're not safe people. Does that sound, you know, true yeah, with what you were saying? Absolutely. And, and it gets into the, the governance part too, that, that Ashley's mentioning, because if I'm, if I'm neurotic in some fashion and, and <laughs> wanting everyone to be equal and, you know, no hierarchy, then you've got a bunch of, you're herding cats if you're lucky <laughs> and, and some more dangerous animal if you're not. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But but the, then or someone comes in with the power trip and there's I think that's your third piece there. Well, that's the third. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and or, you know, tries to organize the community. You've got people who don't want hierarchy and they're fighting the power. So there's <clears throat> at least being clear enough with myself and the games I'm going to play that yeah. I can call myself out or I can stand in being called out by somebody. Right, or there's mechanisms to call you out yes. or to deal with the issues as they arise. I'd like to hear more about the, the sexuality piece though, because I've, this has never been brought up thus far in our conversations. And I mm. think it's probably so essential, but I think people just don't have language to talk about it well. And it's just like one of those things that's awkward to talk about. So I, I don't know if you have any like um, thoughts or heuristics or like, you know, pieces of advice to give people um, who are seeking community and seeking like 
connection with other people. Um, but, you know, like, you know, are trying to work out what, how to handle, you know, the, the issue of sexuality. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the thing that I have found that is the absolute 100% best is to, to, to get honest mm-hmm. with yourself. And, and then once you're honest with yourself, you can begin to be honest with the people around you, um, specifically around your desires. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether those desires are, uh, you know, for monogamy or polyamory or, um, uh, you know, kinky or vanilla, whatever, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you, each of us individually, we are each individually connected to whatever is true for us and that we have worked through our shame so that we can know what our desires, fears, and boundaries are. Because if we have not worked through our shame, we are going to project that on to everybody around us so that it can be reflected back to us in ways that just, again, create these distorted fields where nobody knows what the heck is going on. Nobody knows what's theirs and what's not theirs. And it's just a massive immaturity in the field and will blow things up because that, that, you know, that sexuality, that sexual energy is life force energy. And when it is contorted and not talked about and full of shame, and pushed into the shadows, it's, it's going to come out in so many different ways. And, and, you know, I think that the communities that we've seen over the years collapse so often do collapse because of, you know, un, undealt with sexual triangles that (laughs) and then came out later. Oh my God, that person, they were having an affair. Um, Right. You know, or or leaders, leaders screwing their followers and blowing things up that way. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, The guru model where the guru's having sex with everybody, but nobody knows, but everybody can kind of tell and like, what's that all about? And, and so then people don't feel safe. Right. Because we're not. And I also, I also think there's something to be said about, um, I think just like thinking through different models where sexuality was, it's like, like you said, it's this in- extremely potent life force. So thinking about different models where sexuality was like kept under control with certain rules or expectations, again, right. with the governance thing, it's like, you know, we don't have to reinvent the wheel when it comes to this stuff. We cannot just pretend it doesn't exist. And it's not a like power is, I guess, basically the first thing you're talking about. And sex is the second thing you're talking about. They're extremely potent forces and unleashed or with no rules, uh, things are bound to blow up. So I think just thinking about, you know, I think, for example, with the power example, um, you know, people think that when they say there's no hierarchy, there's no hierarchy, but there actually is always hierarchy. And people are just gaming the non-hierarchy system. For example, the um, the consensus decision-making where everybody has to agree, but then the way people game that is just like one person refuses to agree until everyone goes along with them mm-hmm. because they're just like hacking the system as it is. And not that, that happens in every case, but it's been studied that that, that has been known to happen. So just uh, uh, my two cents on that too, is like part of what 
I'm interested in is you don't take everything from the past, but maybe some lessons from times and, and ways in which humans have handled this in the past. Um, you know, we don't have to throw everything out now. So yeah. sorry, my little soapbox. Um, and then the last one I'd like to hear. Um, no, the, the last of- one is the power one, right? So so first it's money, then it's sex, then it's power. Oh yeah, right? you're right. At the end, yeah. at the end yeah. of the day, right? These are these this is what is motivating all of us: money, sex, and power. And yeah. when we don't acknowledge that and we don't come into a healthy relationship with these three things, how can we possibly be safe? And so the power piece to me is about taking full responsibility for our emotional reality, learning to be in conflict in a way that is healthy and to deal with our addictions, honestly. In some way or another, I believe that we are all addicts and that when we uh, aren't honest about that, that addiction is then able to be uh, manipulated by ourselves, you know, <laughs> uh, to ourselves, but also by the external, you know, societal manipulative um, bad actors. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that we can um, begin to heal and, 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 that really in community is the best way to heal all of this. Um, but in order to do that, we just, we, we have to be able to take full personal responsibility. And, and I think, you know, kind of my worldview is that those of us who choose to do this and go down this path of um, really living, working and playing together, and learning how to live in harmony with ourselves, each other, and the planet on land, um, uh, we can recognize that we were born at this time specifically for the purpose of healing these wounds of the past generations that were passed on to us because those past generations didn't have the resources. They didn't have the time, energy, and attention. They didn't have the money. They didn't have access to the healing modalities or the levels of awareness that we have now to be able to heal these wounds. So of course, we're, we're in an evolutionary world. And so evolution, and this is where we get the optimism part, evolution landed these wounds in us mm-hmm. to be healed so that we can continue to thrive as a humanity on the planet that can continue to thrive on the planet. And I do think, and I guess this is the doomer part, um, it's gonna be much fewer number of people that that will be able to thrive on the planet because, um, you know, that just seems like, that's what's true. Um, and, you know, I, I, I choose to look at it from the lens of, first of all, we all die. Yes, of course we all die because we all die. <laughs> We're <laughs> humans. So, so every single person that is alive on this planet right now 
within, let's call it 150 years, if we want to be, you know, okay, maybe longevity and, you know, all of this really happens and like somehow <laughs> we can make it 150 years. I don't want to make it that long in this body personally, <laughs> but just for the outside, you know, every single person on this planet alive right now is dead within 150 years. Yeah. So if we, if we just start with that acceptance and acknowledgement of that, then maybe it's a little less scary that we're all going to die because we all are just going to die. And, and, and so what continues, what continues is what can, what can live in harmony with the planet. Yeah. Yep. And so if that's what's true, then what we get to do is really figure out how to live more in harmony with the planet so that our children, even for those of us that aren't having children, we are influencing the next generation so that our children, those that come after us, those that are living 150 years from now, are really the ones that have figured out how to live in harmony with the planet and who have benefited from the healing work where we've learned to come into harmony with ourselves, each other, and the planet. And those will be the ones that are living. What else can survive? Right. And I like, I really like the idea of, um, you know, uh, sort of we're, we're experimenting now where we we've reached a point where we just can't go on this way, you know? And I think it's like a collective, either you have a, like an, a psychological awakening or like literally a material awakening. Like I, I can't have this job anymore. I can't do the, these things. We, my kids are at home, they're, they're remote learning. Like I cannot not be with them. I, I have to be with them. And then you're just like sort of forced to reevaluate. I was just um, listening to Tucker, um, on this podcast talking about doomer optimism and he said um covid was one of the best things that ever happened to me i realized i don't just love my family i like my family i like spending all this time with them this is actually awesome what the fuck was i doing before and i, I love that because it's just like you're just forced into this awakening a lot of people are um and it doesn't have to be like this you know, woo woo awakening either. It could literally just be like, you look to your family and your kids and you're like, I like you. I want to spend more time with you. And I need to like have a healthier relationship with you, you know? Um, so, okay. So then, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I just want to give another example of that, right. For people that may need, need more examples, like you may be forced into a future reality where you have to live multi-generationally because that's yep. actually what's required by your economic reality. And yep. we think our economic reality is imposed upon us. It's not, we are actually creating our economic reality. We are the creators of the economic reality we live in, but it might seem like you're being forced, like we talked earlier, to live multi-generationally. Right. Well, then you will be forced to figure out a way to get along with your parents or your children if you're the parent and that is that does require some level of awakening right yep. again not the woo awakening but actually the really grounded like okay how do i grow Who, up yeah who's making dinner tonight like what are the power relations like who gets groceries you know yeah. can we talk about these things even you know 
how do I take responsibility for my emotional outbursts? Yep. You know, how do I stop blaming everybody around me for my behavior? Um, right. Because my behavior is actually my responsibility. And, and, and so um, I think that we are the generation. Um, I think we're all Gen Xers here on the line. I'm millennial. You're I'm okay. a boomer. I'm actually old, a boomer? Old, old, old millennial, old millennial. Yeah. Okay. So, so we've got, we've got a, 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 a very young boomer, a Gen Xer, an old, old millennial. So we're kind of here. close. Yeah. Yeah. We're all kind of close on the edges, right. Of that kind of Gen X reality. Yeah. I would say that, you know, pro, pro, I, I would say that I see us as um, the young elders mm-hmm. on the field right now. And it is yep. up to us at like our cohort I would say, um, get to wake up, grow up and show up to show our seniors that we're not going to abandon them. Mm -hmm. Right. And that they actually need us and that maybe, um, what they need to do is actually free up the resources that they're hoarding right now to be able to, um, uh, support the next generation before they die. That's like a yep. really big piece, right? Is like, there's, there's tremendous amount of resources that are stuck in the hands of the senior generation right now because they're terrified. Yep. And they, and they want their resources to last until they die. And then they want to be able to hand those resources on when they die. But the problem is that if they do that, I think that actually they're going to lose a tremendous amount of those resources and have to find that, okay, well, we are going to take care of you, but we're going to have a lot less resources to be able to do that with. What if instead of waiting to be forced into that, they actually chose right now to free up those resources, take them out of the stock market and support the junior generation to actually buy land, buy housing, create a reality where we can take care of them now. We're not waiting until they die to get what they have. Right. It's too late at that point. Um, and and it, what it takes for that to happen is for our generation, the receivers of that wealth, to uh, be able to show up as adults, say to the senior generation, hey, senior generation, we're in this together and um, we need to rely on each other now to be able to get into, let's say, housing or land together where we're going to be able to actually take care of you and then show the junior generations that are coming up behind us how to be a model where, where they now have a model of care yep. for us where we're not like trying to get them independent, you know, and, and as soon as possible so that, so that what, so that they can, you know, go kind of live in the metaverse, um, (laughs) you know, I know. know. And I think rethinking, like, what are the goals too? Like, what, what should we be aspiring to? What should we have young people excited about? Um, What kind of life should they be aspiring to? And I think what you're, you're speaking to is something that keeps coming up and a lot of people aren't saying explicitly either is um, legacy thinking 
thinking yes. um, intergenerational thinking over time um, about how accepting that you will one day die means um, and this is like so <laughs> deeply religious, but accepting that you will one day die means your focus is on what can you, your time on earth contribute to. Um, and this, this uh, very practically, one of the Doomer Optimists who's, um, uh, he's a military expert and he's, uh, he's you know, high up in the military. And he said explicitly to his kids, his kids are both in college right now. Um, when you get married, I'm going to transfer X amount, like a, a huge portion of my wealth to you. But then mm. when I turn 65, you have to take care of me. <laughs> but 100%. it's basically like the, be it's the beginning of your life. You're set yeah. up. You're set up with all my resources, everything I can give you so that when the younger generation has that, they're in the period of time in their life where they can make something of it. And it's good for the older generation. It's good for the younger. It's like so much more potential is unlocked than it just sitting in the stock market making a few percentage points and not in the hands of your creation, your legacy, your lineage. Um, so I'm explicitly for that. Um, but, and that's actually a very traditional way of doing things too. I had a, um, a friend whose um, grandmother was in work camps in Ukraine in World War II, came to Chicago, worked in a factory her whole life. And when her kids got married, they each in this in the 80s, they each got a hundred thousand dollars because she saved that much working in a factory over time. Mm -hmm. Um, and it was like this amazing thing where it's just that that was the idea. And then in return, she got cared for in her old age. You know, that was that was the clear expectation. Um, Stephen, did you have any thoughts or questions? Sorry, yeah, I'm well, so I, I'm, I'm I'm sitting here like I'm I'm sort of stuck, like I now got this grand vision, but the, I'm thinking of the part back about becoming safe. Yeah. And there's two pieces that, that have popped up for me. See if I could get them both out and then however you want to talk about them. One is, one is your, your own journey, Allie, because I know for myself, I've spent most of my time in that personal exploration of becoming safe. And so I haven't there's ways that I haven't learned to engage with community because I've been working on myself and theoretically knowing how I would interact in community. Mm -hmm. But then there's the rubber hits the road kind of thing, right? Okay, mm -hmm. I've lived a lot of my life. I've created my own safe world in my head. And I've still, I'm pretty good out socially, but there's plenty of blind spots, I'm sure, because I've kept my world small enough to stay safe. And I've watched, you know, you've, you've gone big and you've done all these things. So I'm wondering for, for someone who like possibly like myself, it's like, well, I could just sit here, but I've got this dance of wanting to connect. And I know that I'm, I know there are ways I'm not safe. And you obviously work that edge more extrovertedly, mm. if nothing else, because of your business ventures in the way you, you worked and had your community around you. But I also see that ties into the safety and this legacy thing, Ashley, you're talking about, because my emotionally, my family was not safe. Mm -hmm. Like I couldn't be around. I, I was not willing to put myself in the place of being around my family for more than a week. It's just my father was hard to be with. And maybe my, you know, I could have grown through taking care of him or stuff like that, but I didn't. And I didn't. So there's, 
there's that challenge. And I see parents like you, Allie, who are clearly doing your work. You are a safe parent for your children, no matter what you've gone through. You know, I, I just the little glimpses you, you give about things with Noah. It's like, I'm ready almost to tears just being present to that, you know, because I didn't, I didn't have that. And instead I inherited a chunk of money from my parents who both passed away. And I'm grateful for that, but I missed out on that legacy family journey. I am the end. My sister and I are the end. Neither one of us will have children. Well, you so haven't they, missed out yet though. Well, as far I, as far as biologically, I'm happy to be, you know, sure. stepdad or whatever and yep. contribute to all of that. I'm clear that that's, you know, where I'm stepping into now. Well, that's the thing, right? Is so, so, so the other piece of it is this whole idea of, you know, our own DNA and our genes and all of that, like your, your genes, you know, your specific DNA may not be passed on, but your, the, 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 the DNA of your consciousness, mm -hmm can and will be. And to me, that is far more important than the DNA of your cells, your physical cells, which by the way, carry all the epigenetic wounding, right. <laughs> you know, of the past. So maybe it's good. Those are not. Well, that's what, yes. Yeah, so I was very clear as a teenager. I didn't, I didn't know exactly what was going on, but I did not want to carry forth that wounding. I was just, if anything, I would adopt once I felt mature enough and there's enough stories like the parent parent do interviews and stuff it's like well yeah being a parent will grow you up it's just not a degree that i was able to choose that i didn't go but you way. know one thing i would oh sorry yeah i was just gonna say one other thing the thing that i think a lot of people don't realize is how interdependent communities worked in the past is you can't just have only parents at the level there have to be other people there's, it's so traditional to have uh, like uh, uncles and aunts and uh, stepfathers and stepmothers and and adults yes. who yeah. are around, like sort of guiding the next generation. The village raised have, a child. Yeah, it, well, exactly. And I think a, a lot of people don't even think about that role, but how important is my, my kids, um, whenever we go to the US, my cousin, she doesn't have any kids and the, the amount they love her they go with her and what that does for our family to succeed. What the time that, that she spends with them allows us to all succeed. Like, and it allows our parenting and our entire family to be better. And she loves the relationship. Like it's good for everybody involved. And I think, you know, we had a parenting podcast and it was all about parenting, but I would, I would love to have a podcast talking about the role of the of the person who has chose chosen not to have kids in creating a you know an optimistic version of the future. Sorry, Ali, I cut you off. No, I'm I, I that I it's it, I agree. It's the exact same thing. It's like Stephen, you you do have this legacy opportunity still. Yes. And 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 I don't mean through having your own children. I mean through becoming part of a community. And using your time, energy, attention, and money, team, I call those your team resources, to be a safe adult in the community that you will participate in with your resources. And by doing that, you can leave a tremendous legacy in that community and on the children that are then raised in that community. 
And that, like to me, every per, every single person um, has, uh, it would be so much smarter for single people to begin to take their resources and invest those resources in getting closer to community while they're young, while they're healthy, while they're still in a creative phase. So they don't become a drain on society later. Because if you take your resources and put them into a community now in a way that supports the thriving of that community in a way where that community wants to take care of you later, then you don't have to end up being a person who ends up in a nursing home alone on governmental assistance to pay for your care and didn't actually contribute at the highest level to a society and a world that actually works for everyone. Mm -hmm. And so like, if, if you wanna get to be a safe person, which is what I hear you saying that you want to learn from my experience in doing that, it would require facing everything that is keeping you separate. Everything that is keeping you from leaning in and getting hurt and being vulnerable. And, and I would just add, I completely agree. And, and I would just add to that my orientation towards this kind of thing, because Stephen, you said this, um, you noticed from the parenting podcast that they were saying, like, you grow up by being a parent, <laughs> that you grow up, like they're growing up, but you're also growing up. I mm -hmm. think it's true of every single relationship. And I think that if I were you, the way I would approach this problem is you're, it sounds to me like you're timid to get into community because you don't want to screw it up. You don't feel like maybe you're not a safe enough person. Okay. So then you take baby steps, you know, you find and identify a place and you take baby steps with relation with regard to specific relationships. And you do, you know, just the same when you're a parent, you've got this newborn baby, you've got a little time, you know, there you're just adapting little by little. And it's, it's a slow process of adaptation. Um, can you guys still hear me? My, my audio. So, okay, good. Um, so that that's the way I would do it. I also, I very much like the baby step model, you know, mm. so I'd be curious to hear now, what is the, what is happening in Costa Rica? This is my yeah. segue because is the, is it like a big project? You know, how did it, how did it all go? Yeah. I mean, people are yeah. very curious. This yeah. Model, it's, you know, it's, model it's, of community building. it's a big project. So when I failed on the farm, which was necessary for my learning, you know, I, I leaned fully in to creating a community. Um, I learned all the ways not to do it. <laughs> Ended up, you know, li living on this farm and, and, and really loving it in many respects, but then coming back into the world and, and, and building businesses after that, moving off the farm. And yet I, I really held this dream of living on land in community with people that I loved in my heart mm. and but I, I I was far from it because now I'm back in Boulder and I'm building businesses and um uh but 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 the dream lived inside of me and again I think that life had to force me to 
take the next step on it in a way that um, it's very interesting. So it, it all really happened in a way because um, my daughter started um, uh, high school and when she started high school, she immediately got not only got into the wrong crowd, became the leader of the wrong crowd, mm. <laughs> which made total sense um, uh, because I am, you know, her mom and her dad is her dad. So it made sense, it made total sense. And, uh, but it was very confronting. I did not know how to parent her and I was going to send her away um, to a wilderness therapy program. But a series of events happened where that became not possible. And I prayed around it and life said to me or God spirit said to me um, uh, that I needed to be her mother, be her mother. I had no idea how to do. And it turned out that it wasn't just about being her mother but about being her mother, my own inner child's mother, like reparenting myself. And in that process, I decided that I couldn't send her away, that I needed to take her with me. And I was speaking um, at Envision Festival in Costa Rica. I was going there to speak. So I brought her with me. And, um, and, and uh, when, when I was there speaking, uh, I was about to leave and, and go get her. She was uh, at our hotel and I was about to leave and go get her and bring her back to the festival. And I got this really clear message from spirit that said, stay and listen to this man, Stephen Brooks talk. He was speaking right after me, stay and listen to him talk. And so I did. And in his talk, I heard him speaking my dream. He's talking about living on land in community and growing you know, food and access to water. And I am like, whoa, this guy is speaking my dream. And, and then I hear this next message that says, go talk to his parents, go meet his parents. His parents were there at the event. I'm like, okay. So I go meet his parents and, and it turns out that he had grown up in Miami, which is where I grew up. And um, and so I start asking his parents about Miami, you know, where they grow up and where they go to high school. And it, and it turns out they had gone to the same high school that my dad went to. My dad had died in 2004. And so I, I said to, to Norman, Stephen's dad, oh, did you know William Martin? That was my dad's name when he died. And he said, I didn't know William Martin, but I knew Billy Katz. That had been my dad's name in high school, Billy Katz. I know, it was crazy. I was like, wait, what? <laughs> Turns out that they had been very good friends in high school. Oh my gosh. I, I love coincidences. I love this. I love mysterious things. You know, I love that. Super mysterious. So right after the Envision Festival, Norman and Steven were having an event called the Roots Gathering in, uh, uh, on the other side of Costa Rica, on the Caribbean side of Costa Rica. And so I rescheduled everything and I went to the Roots Gathering in, in, at this place called Punta Mona. And um, I was actually there that I got my name, Alley Cats, through a whole series of things that happened because you know I'm taking it back to the roots and my dad's name and all of this. Oh, that's um, cute. 
Yeah. And, um, uh, but what I also got clear about at the roots gathering is that I needed to go home and get my kids and bring them back and for a two and a half week permaculture design course. And cool. I was in the middle of needing to take back over two companies and step into leadership in my companies in a way I never had before. And like, it was the worst time in the world on a, on one level to go spend two and a half weeks in the jungle. And yet right. I did it. I went and I got my kids and we spent two and a half weeks in the jungle. It saved my daughter's life. Ugh. Um, she, you know, I didn't need to send her away. It turns out I had to bring her to the jungle <laughs> and, and, and but with you, with you, with me, that's right. With me. Yes. With me. Um, and, and what I, what I began to see is that I'm supposed to move to Costa Rica. Now, all of this was many years ago now. This was all back in 2015, right? So this is seven years ago. Yeah. But I held that in my heart and in my knowing that I'm going to live on land in community. And it looks like it's probably going to be in Costa Rica. And that was very surprising to me because my mind would never have chosen Costa Rica. I'm not into bugs. I thought I didn't <laughs> like humidity. You know, I grew up in Miami. I didn't want to move back to that. Like I would have chosen like Maui or something, right? Right. <laughs> Maybe you wouldn't have chosen, you know, Uruguay. How'd you end up there? Um, <laughs> and 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 yet um, it just step by step became true. And three years ago, I, I, I went back to Costa Rica and um, saw the land that Stephen had bought called Alegria. And it was right next to another community that he had already started called Ecovia. And I stood on this rock and I said, oh, this is the spot. Mm -hmm. And when I got to the garden that they had already built, the community garden, my, I, I, my, I just burst into tears because oh for the first time I, I could feel, oh, this is the place I can die. Hmm. That and to me, and the one thing, sorry, I want to let yeah. you continue, but the, the one thing that repeats over and over for a lot of people who are talking about the series of awakening and experimentation is there is oftentimes like a moment. Yeah. Um, and the, our neighbors here who moved from um, Norway to Uruguay said, we, there's a ferry that you take from Argentina, from Buenos Aires to come over to this part of Uruguay and you get off the ferry and it's just quiet. You're coming mm -hmm. from a city and you come here and it's just quiet and there's just not a lot of chaos or movement and it's just that sense of peace. So I, I, I hear this over and over again it's, and it's just really beautiful hearing the story recounted. I think there's an important piece there too in your story, Ali, because I know in my own searching for community and wanting to get back to the land, I've thought, like I, particularly in my personality, oh, Uruguay, oh, I want to go there. Oh, Costa Rica, yeah. I want to go there. And then yeah. um, I've just joined Joel, Joe Brewer's um, Earth Regenerators community and he's yeah. working in Colombia. It's like, oh, there. But the, the thing that Joe, I like, really like what Joe says is to, to let the land call me. Yeah. You know, so there's actually a relaxing for me. And I'm, I'm thinking of the listener who's hearing Ali's story and going, well, yeah, I don't know where I want to live. You know, it's like, oh, oh but, or, or the one who's so determined to live in a certain place because they've got it in their mind versus really let, like you just described, you stood there and you knew 
It yeah. wasn't an intellectual mm -hmm. thing. It was a body thing. It was the land saying, I want you here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, and when, when I bring myself yes. back to that, then I'm not so like, oh, I've got to figure it out. I got to figure it out. No, it's right. now continuing to engage with people for let the synchronicities bring me to the land. And I would just add to that, Stephen, um, not just thinking about it, getting out there and doing stuff. Like Allie went yes. there yes. to this permaculture festival. She was physically there or, you know, this other festival and this permaculture course, like she was physically there. So trying stuff where you're really getting out of your comfort zone and just doing it is a different thing, I think a lot. And I think that would be my advice too, is like really get out there and, and see what's out there, feel, feel it and experience Oh yeah, it. I know, I'm, I'm clear it involves getting out of the basement I'm in now, <laughs> you know, and that's why there's a conversation down the road for yeah. my participation at Rhizoma. And, yeah. and, you know, I've been on land in Hawaii with a friend who is a gentleman farmer and I love that little bit I was there, I love that. So it's, it's not like I have concerns about that. It really is getting, getting to places or listening to places yeah. calling me and honoring that call. Yep, yep. And then Ali, sorry, continue your yes. uh, story. So what happened between the epiphany moment and mm -hmm. no, the rest? I got really clear on what I would need. I got really clear on what I would need to be able to say yes. And I, and I think that that is very important um, that, that we all get clear on what we would need in order to say yes to whatever's next. And, 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 and to learn, I think that, you know, what's, what's coming through here is to learn to listen, to learn to listen to what life actually wants for you and from you. And um, to, to be willing to keep saying yes to things that might not make sense. <laughs> because what makes sense oftentimes is just this need to keep yourself safe. That's what makes sense, right? Our logical mind wants to keep us safe. Yep. And, but what's safe isn't actually what's safe. <laughs> So that's confusing, right? right? Because what we have been taught is safe is actually not what's safe. What's safe is um, uh, learning to be in um, danger um, in a container of safety. Like I love danger in a container of safety. Yeah. And, <laughs> and so how can we create these containers of safety so that we can actually get our danger kind of intentionally as opposed to what will be forced upon us if we don't create our own containers of safety? Totally. It's like a, it's like the scale uh, issue where you, you want things to be a little bit difficult. So you become resilient. You don't want trauma, like full on trauma. You want things to be like challenging, but not like debilitating. Yes, yes, exactly. And so we get to choose that. You know, we get we really we get to we get to choose that. And you know, I think Stephen, you're 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 really like in some ways this perfect case study, right? You're in your you're in your basement, you want to get out <laughs> of your comfort zone, you want to create a little danger for yourself. And so my my encouragement is, you know, to 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 take a step towards doing that get closer, 
Get closer to the thing that scares you. Turn towards whatever it is that scares you the most. It's a really great first step. Thanks. I love that. Um, so, so now are you going back to, to Costa Rica? You're currently in Colorado and, yes. um, you're, and you're a part. So if I understood correctly, you're like living or when you go to Costa Rica, a part of this community that's created by somebody else uh, without, because we would probably do a whole other podcast on this, but how is the community set up? Is it like single family units that you can buy a little portion of it or is yeah. it like all communally owned or what you know just a little bit of the setup yeah. of the community i'd be curious to hear sure it's called alegria village and it is um right next to another community called ecovia ecovia has 50 homes um it's hoa style like it's like almost like a development you know these these guys are like from Miami, right? <laughs> so, so it's it's almost like like a, a development. Um, there's an HOA. In fact, I'm going I'm going back to um, Costa Rica in two weeks for our first HOA meeting at Alegria. Right now, it's all raw land. We're all building from scratch, and there's there's common buildings. Um, so we have a common yoga deck and a pool and a co working space and um, a garden. Um, and then I invested in four lots within the community, one on my own, and then three in partnership with others, and they're contiguous. So I'm building like a community within the community. I love it. I haven't decided yet what the model will be, the revenue model or um, uh, any of that for the, I, I'm just in the, like, just designing our very first places and I'm doing it by really listening deeply to what the land wants and what what's wanted there and it's interesting because we are not by the beach we are by San Jose airport about an hour away I know um, it it's a really beautiful area it's really beautiful it's really beautiful and a lot of my friends are building in Nosara which is you know about five hours away on uh um uh in the Guanacaste province and it's you know there by the beach and I've been spending a lot of time in Nosara because when I go to Costa Rica now that's where my friends have homes and I'm like oh my god why am I investing all the way over there when all my friends are here in Nosara what am I doing I don't know life is guiding me and life has told me that I'm building a safe space for the feminine to express <laughs> That. As I say it, I'm still like, this is weird, but it's true. I'm building a safe space for the feminine to express right in the middle of this development of about, you know, 200 homes. I love it. You know what? And I, well, honestly, I, I've studied this a little bit, the different community models and um, the one, the HOA model seems to me the, the most that like modern people can handle and wrap their heads around. You know, it's a governance structure that makes sense. It doesn't have to be evil, the HOA, if it's run no. by- If it's cool, us. Cool people who are making the rules, right, exactly. So I think we, that's- We are that's, the HOA, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, Stephen, I'll, I'll let you have the, the final question. The only other thing I was interested in is how uh, your readers received the Doomer Optimism article from you if they're already primed for this kind of thing, or did you get like a big response or normal response for you? Um, and then I'll let Steven do the final question, sorry. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, 
So I have a very diverse audience. My audience spans lawyers, um, uh, you know, professionals in the in the legal and financial world, all the way to, you know, I would say the more kind of festival goer, um, you know, ready to live on the land, artist, creative, um, because you know I kind of span that reality in myself, right? Um, and you know, you can actually go to the article and 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 see, you know, the the diversity, right, of of what people are saying about it right there. There's not that many comments, but in the in the comments that are there, it's the full range of this is great. So glad you're sharing this to how can you believe um, that we'll come out the other side stronger and better with climate change, you know, the way it is. And and so right. You know, it's, I think it's, I think it's the full range. Um, some people hate Tucker, you know, they're like, yep. why are you promoting this guy, Tucker Max? He's the worst. Um, uh, and so, you know, I, back in the day when I, when I had, um, I would say more fame than I have now, I, one of my learnings from it is that if you're going to put yourself out there, you got to be ready to receive the full range of humanity back in return. And so, you know, what I love about the Doomer Optimism Movement, and I'm just so glad that you've put a name to it, is that it is giving words to something that I have felt so long in my heart. And we don't have to persuade anyone of anything. We just need to give words to what so what others are feeling so that those of us who do see what's coming and want to coordinate ourselves accordingly are able to see who's out there that we can start to come into community with so that we can begin to build the new systems that are going to be needed as the old systems collapse because the old systems are not sustainable they don't actually create more life, they're win-lose, which ultimately leads to lose-lose. And if we do and are able to come together in the creation of an all-win reality, which I think we can, um, then the people that choose that or are forced into it and then choose it will be the ones that are, you know, still alive in 200 years but it won't right. be us and thriving yeah thriving but the legacy yep the legacy yeah the legacy um, will live the legacy of our shift in consciousness is what will thrive into the future and we get to participate however much i we love want that right this now. is so funny this this uh just this um interview I heard from Tucker I'm so sorry Stephen I'm just so excited I'm gonna let you go last I'm so sorry um this Tucker interview he says he was talking about this book he read about the life of the Buddha and he said this is the quote the Buddha said this basic thing your job here is to do your work and then share your work with others so that it might help them so that's all I'm gonna do man it's the doomer optimism piece I'm gonna do my work and share with the world I love that uh Stephen I'll give you the last uh question prompt because my baby's oh, here sure I, I, I wish i had some something in mind um i i don't know if you can do this as like a, a simple couple sentences but i'm really curious how the your participation in the burner culture ally has prepared yeah. you for collapse 
I mean, going to Burning Man and, you know, what was it the first time, 2008, was the first taste I got of a reality in which none of my decisions were being made through the lens of money. So as soon as I landed on the playa, I got to experience a world in which exchange of money was not the foundation of our relationships. And I had never experienced that before. I had never experienced a gift culture before. Yeah, big, big contrast for you coming from that high-powered attorney world. Yeah, and it did cause me to swing too far to the other side of believing that money was evil and money didn't matter and did, did all of that and, and, and pushing away from money, which is also not the right answer. So I did ultimately need to come back to the middle ground of right relationship with money. It's actually interesting in, in, in 10 minutes, um, uh, I run a course called Fix Your Financials. Um, and, uh, and it is really about right relationship with money. But Burning Man was the beginning of seeing an alternative. And, you know, Burning Man is, is not the foundation for healthy living and relating, mm -hmm. but it can be an awakening moment of, oh, how little I actually need. I can live in a tent or in an RV on land with people I love and have an incredible life. I don't actually need all of these things that I have told myself that I need in order to love my life. What I really need is...